0: Uh, here in uh, John chapter 6, John, uh, in the, the first two words of John 6, uh, after this, um, doesn't really sum up the, the chronological order of things uh, when we compare it to the rest of the gospel records. Um, many people believe that between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6 could have been a larger of a period as um, half a year, six months, in between the events of John chapter 5 and John chapter 6. Uh, The feeding of the 5,000, though, it's it's good to have uh, these records because the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the uh, miracles contained not only in the Gospel of John. Uh, John often contains things that other gospel writers don't include, Uh, but he includes this here, the feeding of the 5,000, as do the other three gospel writers, both Matthew and Matthew chapter 14, Mark and Mark chapter 6, and in Luke chapter 9, we have a record of the feeding of the 5,000. So in uh, going through this um, the story today, we are going to draw a little bit from those other passages, uh, especially when it comes to uh, giving the background for John chapter six. And um, speaking of the background for John chapter six, of course we know that this is a very famous miracle. One is uh, that is often, um, as are almost all of the miracles of Christ or all the miracles contained in um, Scripture, attacked by unbelievers. Um, They think, well, how ludicrous to think that someone actually fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fishes, regardless of their size. Um, But as we can see, um, there is nothing beyond uh, God's power to accomplish. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And here we see just another example of God's power at work and his authority uh, over all of creation. Um, Here, John doesn't give us a lot of details leading up to this miracle, um, however, we see a lot of more details listed in uh, Mark and Luke specifically. So just a little background to what's going on here in John chapter 6. And, um just prior to this miracle in the book of Mark and the book of Luke, we see the sending out of the disciples by Jesus Christ. He sent out his 12 disciples, and in sending them, he gave them power to heal. He gave them power to cast out demons, and he sent them with the charge that they were to proclaim or preach the gospel uh, of the kingdom of God. And having been sent by Christ and having been given this power, that's what they did. They went out, they healed the sick, they cast out demons, and they proclaimed the kingdom of God. Uh, we see that in, um, in Mark, most notably. Um, in the midst of all this, we see the execution of John the Baptist kind of interjected in this whole storyline. Uh, John the Baptist was a very outspoken um, preacher. Uh, he had no... Um, no hesitation in calling out sin where he saw it. And um, a most famous uh, instance of that was uh, in regards to Herod, the ruler, uh, who had taken his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, for himself, and he had married his brother's wife. Uh, and John the Baptist, as, um, as brazen as he was, went and he called out uh, that sin and, and spoke against it uh, in the presence of Herod. And, of course, that displeased Herod, but it, it most specifically displeased Herodias, And the Bible says that she had a a grudge against John the Baptist from that time forward. So as it happened, um, Herod was gathering a a group of people at his palace or mansion, and uh, Herodias' daughter came out, and she danced for Herod and for his guests. Um, The Bible tells us that this pleased Herod, and he told her, um, tell me one thing that you want, whatever it is that you desire, and I will give it to you. So um, having been promised that, she went and ran to her mother, who promptly told her that you should ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And uh, she went back and gave that request to Herod, and Herod immediately sent an executioner and took John the Baptist, who had been imprisoned, uh, for speaking out against Herod and Herodias and beheaded him and uh, brought the head of John the Baptist to her on a platter, You say, what does this have to do with the story? Well, not a tremendous amount. But we see uh, all the while this is happening, all all the while the disciples are out uh, healing and casting out demons and preaching the kingdom of God, Jesus as well is performing his own miracles, healing, uh, and um, all of those things. We see in many different places where it it doesn't even specify who was healed or how many were healed. Uh, Some passages of Scripture just say, uh, he healed all that were brought to him that were sick. And um, I I know that if if, uh, such healing were going on in uh, present day, uh, everybody would come out of the woodwork with people that they know that are sick or are ailing uh, to this great teacher who can heal all sorts of sickness and disease. So Jesus is performing these miracles. And all the disciples return to Christ, and they bring him this message of, first of all, the results that they saw in their proclaiming of the gospel of the kingdom of God uh, and healing the sick and casting out demons. And also, they relayed the message to him about the death of John the Baptist. And so at this time, the Bible says that Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Here, he's actually going away from the the part that is ruled by Herod. uh, There in the western side, from your perspective, the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And he, he leaves most likely from the city of Tiberias. And we know that from the passage, it says, um, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. It was uncommon for it to be called the Sea of Tiberias, except for people that lived on that western shore of the Sea of Galilee, where the city of Tiberias was located. So we, he's going from the western part of the Sea of Galilee, and he goes across um, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the Bible says a, a large crowd was following with him, uh, because they, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Uh, later on, we'll see that people followed Christ, not for the message that he preached. He says, you're not here for the, the message, you're here for the loaves and the fishes. You're here to see the, the, the deeds that are done, you're here to be fed physically, uh, and you're not following after me for the, the right reasons. But ne- nevertheless, we see a great crowd following him. Um, and as we'll notice later, uh, they followed Christ even to the neglect of their own physical being. And their own um, needs. So we, hear, we see here Jesus Christ gathered with a large crowd. They followed him to see the signs that he was doing. And he went up on the mountain. Uh, many people think that this wasn't necessarily a very specific mountain. But the, the mountains, uh, or the, the land area to the east, the northeast specifically of the Sea of Galilee, is a very mountainous area. It's kind of hill country. So it could refer to any one of the hills or mountains that were there on the, on the side of um, the Sea of Galilee. And there he sat down with his disciples. Most often Jesus Christ sat, if you look uh, throughout the gospel records, he would sit and teach his disciples. That was his custom. And here in verse number 4, Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. This kind of both gives us a a view into the political uh, climate. Um, Many people followed after Christ because they thought that he was the one Messiah. Their uh, idea of the Messiah, as we'll see later in this passage, um, did not line up with what Jesus actually came to this earth for. They believed that he was a political ruler that would rise up, much like Moses. We could see a lot of, and I, I, unfortunately I, I can't take the time to go into all of the parallels that can be drawn between um, Jesus and Moses in this uh, miracle. But um, in reading uh, a little background, uh, a lot of the commentators draw a lot of parallels between Jesus and what the, the people expected their Messiah would be, a Moses-type leader who would rise up, deliver the people from their uh, oppressors, from Rome, and deliver them and provide for them. Um, so we see here people gathering here, and um, here it says, Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. So this is kind of springtime. We also see the, the very deserted place where they were uh, was filled with green grass. They all sat down on, on grass, um, and that would be the only time of the season where grass would be green in this part of the, of the country. It was a desert place. So he sees the large crowds coming to him, and we're faced with, first, of, first off, a dilemma. We're going to look at the, the dilemma that Jesus Christ gives his disciples. Uh, we'll also look at the disciples' response to Christ, and then we'll look at the provision that Jesus gave and the excessive supply that was, that was had. So first off, we see the dilemma presented to the disciples in verse number five and six. So Jesus turns and Jesus said to Philip, and this is very interesting that John uh, draws out Philip as the specific one that Jesus is addressing. If you look at the other gospel accounts of this, Jesus um, talks to the disciples. He calls the disciples and he tells the disciples as a whole, uh, feed them, feed the people. But here he specifically addressed Philip. in Mark, Luke, and also Matthew, we see as it comes time uh, when evening is coming and Jesus is concluding his miracles, the disciples come to him and they say, Why don't you send the crowds away? Send the crowds away to the various villages and places all around this area so they can eat and they can have, find lodging. Um, that's not contained for us here in John, but rather, uh, John just jumps right to the point of the whole story where Jesus presents this dilemma to his disciples and says, uh, specifically, to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat and you say well why would why would Jesus call out Philip? Well, if you look back in John chapter one, where um, Philip is brought to Jesus and Jesus calls Philip to follow him, uh, the Bible says that Philip was from Bethsaida, which is uh, most likely the city um, where they were gathered or, or just outside of the city of Bethsaida is where Jesus was here. Uh, with this multitude of people. Uh, So he's saying, where are we going to buy bread that all of these people may eat? Um, And it's very interesting that in verse number six, Jesus had a specific intention by asking this question. Jesus was not literally wondering, um, man, guys, how are we going to feed all of these people? There's so many people here. How are we going to feed all of them? It wasn't that Jesus was wondering what he was going to do. Uh, verse number six states implicitly that, or explicitly that, Jesus knew what he was going to do. But Jesus posed this question to Philip uh, to test him, to prove him, and so he gives him this question: "Where are we going to to find food or buy enough bread for all of these people that they may eat?" Now you um, you see, this is of course always referred to as the feeding of the five thousand. But um, according to Scripture, uh, other portions of Scripture that we look at, we can see that there were more than 5,000 people present. Um, And I believe it's Mark that draws attention to this and says that, or Matthew, that there are 5,000 men beside women and children, specifically denoting that 5,000 men were present besides the others. And some people have estimated that at least double the amount, if not up to 20,000 people were present present. Um, at this, the performing of this miracle. So when you, when you think about the disciples in Christ asking him, where are we going to buy bread to feed all of these people? Just imagine for yourself, um, and I'm not sure, uh, how many of you have been in the crowd of, of, I mean, besides like a baseball game, right? Because we all, baseball games, there's like 50,000 fans. Um, not now, last year there were 50,000 fans. Um, now you have about 20,000 cardboard cutouts. Um, but we've all been in the presence of these massive crowds, Right? Imagine being a, a place where you're looking out over twenty thousand people, and Jesus is asking you, "How or where are we going to buy bread so that all of these people can eat?" And this is the dilemma you're facing. Here is a, a resident, a native of Bethsaida. You know all the you know all the places. You know all the, the the good food joints. You know all the places to buy all this bulk food to feed these people. Um, but notice Philip's response. Um, You will notice here in just a minute, but Jesus was giving him this question to test him as a test of his faith to prove him. Um, Very often in life, we encounter hardships. We all encounter hardships or storms, trials, whatever you'd like to call them. Um, I I heard someone say one time that you're either coming out of a trial, you're in a trial, or you're about to go into a trial. That kind of sums up uh, our life. And trials come our way for many different reasons. Uh, most people say, or I've heard a lot of people say, well, uh, trials come because of the result of your sin, or it's either the result of sin or God is trying to test you. Um, and that's not true. Um, many trials come for a variety of different reasons. And yes, trials can come our way as a consequence of our sin. Um, we look at specifically the life of David, uh, how that God forgave David for his great sin with Bathsheba, but there were unquestionably consequences that came as as a result of David's sin. And many times when we commit sin, there are consequences to that sin. That's not to say that God does not forgive us of our sin, or those sins are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. They are. They are paid for. God, uh, Jesus atoned for those sins on Calvary. But nonetheless, many times we suffer consequences of the sins that we have committed. Other things that we could do may not be sinful, but we often suffer the consequences of our poor decisions. If you take all of your paycheck and you go and spend it on whatever it is that you want to spend it on, and you don't have money to to provide for food or for housing or for electricity or for uh, gasoline for your vehicles, um, you will suffer the consequences of that, right? You will have to go without because you wasted all of your money uh, on something that is not a priority. Um, You could have trials because of that. Many times God is testing us, and sometimes God will send trials into our lives uh, specifically to test our faith or to grow our faith in him, to bring us to a point in our lives where we are seeking him. And it's very interesting in in trials, we are more often to fall uh, at at the feet of of our Lord and and say, God, help me. I'm going through this trial than it is to, to... uh, consistently seek the Lord when we're going through times of plenty. And I think all of us uh, anecdotally know that to be true in our lives. The times of difficulty are often the times that we grow closest to the Lord. So many many trials come our way for many different reasons, but this one specifically, we, often, we have the benefit here of knowing why Jesus brought this dilemma to Philip is to test him. And so we see Philip's response in verse number 7 through verse number 9. Notice Philip's response. In verse number 7, Philip answered him, and he says, "...200 denarii would not be enough bread for each of them to get a little." And here Philip focuses on the the magnitude of the crowd and the, the magnitude of the need. And he specifically says here, "...200 denarii would not be enough." He skips the question that Jesus is asking entirely. Jesus didn't ask him, "...how much money do you think you would need to buy bread for all these people?" He said, where are we going to buy bread? Philip skips it. He says, you can't even find a place to buy bread. But even if you had 200 denarii, and a denarius was the equivalent of a day's wages. He said, if, if you worked for about eight months straight and gave all of that money, saved up all of that money and spent all of that money for food, even 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to have a little bit. So in, in other words, he's saying, this is impossible. The need is far too great to begin to think about where we're going to find the food or how we're going to satisfy this need. He focuses entirely on the magnitude of the need. Notice um, the response of Andrew in uh, verse number uh, 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, said to him, "'There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish.' But what are they for so many? Um, Philip focuses primarily on the enormity of the need, whereas Andrew um, focuses on the very limited supply that they have and the inadequacy of that supply to provide for the people. Now, it's, it's very interesting. Um, you know, we all heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000, and, you know, either when we were kids in and, and Sunday school, and uh, as the story goes, um, there was a need for all these people to be fed, and out of nowhere, this little boy comes up to Jesus and he brings his lunch and he says, Jesus, here's my lunch. You can have my lunch to feed the 5,000 people. And then Jesus takes that lunch and multiplies it and feeds all of them, right? That's how we typically have heard it. Um, it's very interesting, though, but nowhere in this story does it mention the little boy coming to Jesus, presenting his lunch, offering his lunch. Um, but it is, it is assumed that the little boy comes at least to Andrew and offers his lunch to the disciples. And I don't know how all of this happened. It's very interesting, um, some of the gaps that we have in Scripture, all of the details, not everything is completely fleshed out. But um, it is hard to believe that Andrew saw this little boy's lunch and said, Hey, kid, um, can, I have your, can I have your meal here? Because we've got to feed all these people, and we need your meal to do it. Chances are that's not how it happened. Um, Andrew, looking at this little boy's meal, in fact, he does, but uh, looking at this little boy's meal, there's, there's really nothing that would tell us that he would go out of his way to, to ask for this boy's meal or to somehow um, get this meal from him so they can feed them. So most people assume that the little boy, maybe even having overheard the conversation between Jesus and his disciples, um, or maybe getting hungry himself, you know, as, as little boys do, they... No matter what, it doesn't matter what they're doing. You you can be doing whatever you want, playing outside, and you just sit down in the, par, the the playground and you just crack out, crack open your snack, and you just go to town. Right? I don't. We don't know how it happens, but um, Andrew is presented with this um, lunch or this meal of five barley loaves. This would be, this would be poor people's food. This aren't um, just these massive loaves of bread that you see when you you know go to the the local bakery. These just absolutely delicious loaves of bread. These were small loaves, probably just enough to feed the little boy. And Andrew says, "Um, we have this little boy here. There's a lad here that has five small loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? He says, yes, the need is absolutely great and so great, in fact, that we have nowhere even to begin uh, to supply for all of the need. This, This meal that we have, this little lad's lunch is so small completely inadequate to meet the need that we have. Uh, In each of these responses, both from Philip and from Andrew, we see uh, this this inkling of unbelief or disbelief. When you you think, and it's very easy for us, looking back into Scripture to, to judge the faithlessness many times of the disciples um, mainly the disciples. We think of uh, Thomas specifically. How could Thomas have doubted, right? Um, it's easy for us to do that because we have the whole story. We have all of the biblical revelation for us. Um, and we need to be cautious when we look back into scripture passages and, and uh, only criticize um, what we see there. But it's easy for us to look at this and criticize their lack of belief, their their unbelief in Christ. Remember, the disciples had witnessed up to this point just contained in John. We see the the conversion of the woman at the well, Uh, the the woman who had five husbands, and the one that she was with was not her husband. We see the, the raising of the dead. We see healing of the sick performed by Christ and all of the disciples or many of the disciples had seen a lot of these miracles and seen the power of God at work to do things that were uh, thought and known to be impossible with men. But not only that, the disciples themselves had been endowed with the power to heal. Supernatural power and authority to heal the sick and to cast out the demons as they preached the kingdom of God. And then we look at this situation where there's a magnitude of people, a multitude of people to be fed, and we often would say, well, how small was their faith? How faithless of them to reply to Christ in such a way, but I think it would be foolish to criticize them in such a way because I think a lot of us find ourselves in a similar position many times in our own lives. Not only do we know of all the miracles contained in the New Testament, we have the complete revelation. We have all of God's revelation to us. We can see from the very beginning of time uh, up until uh, the, the crucifixion of Christ, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and the work that the Holy Spirit did in the churches. We see all of it. Yes, we see the feeding of the 5,000. We see the raising of the dead. We see all of these things. But more than that, we've been partakers of the miraculous work that Jesus has accomplished. God has, in spite of our hatred and rebellion against him, he has chosen us. He has atoned for our sins. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. He has regenerated us. He is sanctifying us. All of these works we are not only have seen, but we partake in. So how much the more would our condemnation be to see our faithlessness and our lack of believing in God and trusting God for provision and for the problems that come into us in our lives? Yes, there was a great degree of disbelief. Each of them was focused not on Christ, who is the source of every good thing that we have. He is the creator, the sustainer of all. But yet we do the same things many times in our lives. In spite of the knowledge that we have, in spite of the grace that we have received, we often, in times of trouble, in times of trial and dilemma, look at our problems, and instead of looking back to our Lord and saying, Father, help me, guide me, direct me, provide, I pray, we look at our needs and just how huge they are in comparison to who we are and what we have. We need to look to the supply, the ultimate supply and the source for everything, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see the, the, the disciples' uh, response of disbelief. And now here, right after uh, Andrew's comment, he says, what are they among so many? Jesus doesn't even address their questions. He says, uh, make the people sit down. So the Bible says there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Other portions of Scripture tell us that uh, the the group sat down in groups of 50 or hundreds or groups of about 50, um, and so they split themselves up into those groups. And the Bible says that Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. Notice Jesus takes the, the provision, the loaves, and likewise again, and here in just a minute, in the fishes, and he gives thanks. He gives thanks. Um, according to Jewish tradition, even till this day, there's many, many different prayers of thanksgiving that are offered blessings upon bread, upon grains, upon fruit, upon um, all sorts of, uh, mainly when it comes to food, And a traditional Jewish blessing over bread would sound something like this. Blessed be thou, Yahweh our God, king of the world, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. And As Jesus takes these loaves, he blesses them. And he gives them to his disciples, as we see in other parts of of the gospel records. We, We know that Jesus didn't go to each person individually and feed them out of the supply that he had, but he took what he had, he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave it to those that were sat down. Likewise, he took uh, the fish. The Bible says, um, pardon me, in verse number, where'd it go? Verse number 12, or verse number 11. Jesus then took the loaves when he had given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. So he did the same with the fish. Blessed are you, Yahweh our God, King of the universe, by whose word all things came to be. And gives the fish and the loaves and distributes them through his disciples uh, to the people. And we, we know that all the people ate. And it would be miraculous to say that all of the people ate of the food. But the Bible says that they ate as much as they wanted. Verse number 11. So also the fish as much as they wanted. In verse 13, we see the abundant supply that is given. Verse 13 says this, or verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, not only was everyone there fed, not only fed just a little bit, which would be the best that could be expected, but they had eaten as much as they wanted and they were filled. They were satisfied with what was given to them. The Bible says, after they were filled, Jesus instructed his disciples that all of the fragments be gathered, that nothing be lost. So here we have everyone, everyone is fed, everyone is filled. This is a, a miracle, something that only God was able to accomplish, a supernatural working, a supernatural display of the power of God. And we see not only did he provide for their need, he provided an abundant supply for their needs. Our God often gives us abundantly above what we need. Isn't that true? Uh, we, are, we are so blessed, and um, we often have this, this um, very humanistic focus on the, the goods of this life. We live in a very materialistic world, and, and many of us um, are drawn into that uh, almost by default, and to loving the things of this world, and to having the things of this world. But uh, God has provided every, everything that we have. The food that we eat, the clothes that we have on our back, the roof that's over our heads, everything is given to us by the Father. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning, the book of James says. Everything that we have we owe to God. Yes, the needs that we have, but also the excesses that we have. We owe to him, and they are given to us by our Father. So here he tells the disciples, go and I want you to gather up all the excess that nothing be wasted. Um, I, I saw one, one quick parallel I'll relate to you from, um, from Moses, uh, a parallel that was drawn by one of the, the people I read. I think, it was, uh, I think it was Calvin, actually, in his, his commentary. Uh, He drew this parallel, um, how that um, God rained down manna from heaven, right? And he only gave them enough for that day's allotment, that day's provision. And he specifically told them, do not gather more. Don't take anything extra for tomorrow. Uh, And if you do, it's, it's going to be spoiled. It's going to be rotten. Except on that one day, the day before the Sabbath, he would tell them, go out and gather enough for today and for the Sabbath day. And God preserved everything that was. Whereas every other day it spoiled, God preserved all of that uh, to be eaten, not only on that the day before the Sabbath, but the Sabbath day as well. Uh, and he drew that parallel here, and it says, likewise, Jesus tells his disciples, go out and I want you to gather all the fragments that remain. That nothing be lost or nothing be wasted. And what Jesus' intention was, according to him, was to to take these 12 baskets of food and to, to keep them and, and to serve them to others at a later time. I don't, I don't necessarily um, know how all of that went. You hear I've heard many sermons on uh, the feeding of the 5,000, and almost everyone I've heard says, uh, uh, you know, all those 12 baskets left over, he gave one of those baskets to each of the disciples. So they would have a, a remembrance that, that, uh, that God provided abundantly above what they needed. I heard another pastor that... Um, that uh, he referenced that, uh, and he said, um, "I don't think God gave anything to the disciples. They were they disbelieved everything." He said, "I, I think God gave all of those twelve baskets to the little boy, <laughs> and uh, he took him home and showed his showed his mom. Um, I don't know, but he said, take up all of these baskets that nothing be wasted.' And so we see twelve n- baskets. We see twelve full baskets with the remnants of what was uh, what was given. So." what can we learn from this? Um, John Calvin had a couple a couple specific applications. He had, I think, five or six, but a couple really jumped out. Um, and then there's some other practical applications that we can have. Uh, one, if, if God is concerned with providing for the physical needs of those who followed him on a whim or for the wrong reasons, and we noticed later in that passage Um, that Jesus actually had to withdraw from that crowd. In verse number 14 and 15, we see all of the people were just awed with amazement. And he actually withdrew from that crowd, lest they forcibly take him and make him king. Because that's what they thought the Messiah was. That's what they were looking for, a physical leader, a political leader, to deliver them from their oppressors. But he says, if God is so concerned with providing for the physical needs of those who followed him on a whim... Or for the wrong reasons, how much more will he provide for the daily needs of those who seek after him in his kingdom? And we have that promise given to us in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, the necessities of life, as we looked at recently in Luke as well, all of these things will be added to you. They'll be given to you for those who seek the kingdom of God. Not only that, but Calvin said this, God is not only the author of spiritual life, but he is also the fountain of all physical blessings, blessing us with the necessities of our daily life through Jesus Christ. Everything that we have, everything that we own, our very bodies and breath is owed to God. He is the source and the fountain of all of it. And without him, we would have nothing that we have. We would not be were it not for our God. And then lastly, he said, we ought to always give thanks for everything to God through Jesus Christ, as Scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20. Give thanks always for everything to God. Um, We often give thanks to God when we have good things happen, when we're doing well, when our our job is prospering, when we get that bonus at work, or our our family relationships are thriving, or what you can just fill in the blank whatever good things we have, many times, and sad to say, many times we fail to thank God for what we have. But many times we we do well and we thank the Lord. Thank you for all the, the benefits that you've given me, for your provision. But how often do we thank God when we have those trials? When we have, instead of having an abundance, we have a dearth, we have nothing or seemingly less than nothing. Just as much as God is working in the miraculous, abundant times of our lives in providing for us, he also is working in the times uh, of dire need, of times of necessity. So we ought to give thanks to God always for everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one uh, of the last things that we can, um, uh, by way of application, then we'll, we'll close. I didn't want to go too long. I didn't want to get mentioned in the next service. So uh, for those that were here last time I taught... Um, The last thing that we we can look at and we can be thankful for and we can gather from this lesson is that, um, that we have the source of everything. He is accessible. We can reach out to him in prayer and cast all of our cares upon him because he truly cares for us. We can cast all of our cares, all of our anxieties. We can take them to the Lord and cast them at his feet. All of our needs, we can go to the, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and say, Father, I have a need. Can you help me? Instead of worrying about our, our need, our lack, or the magnitude of our problem, we must always just run to Christ with our problems and our trials. And he will meet us there. He will bless us and help us through that time of trial and that time of difficulty. Let's pray. Our Father, we... Um, Lord, we fall short many times. Lord, just as we would look at Philip and Andrew and say, wow, what a lack of faith. Lord, many times if we would actually look into our own lives, we would see, Lord, not only that faithlessness, but faithlessness to a much greater degree at times. And Father, I pray that you'd forgive us, Lord, for the times in our lives where we are surrounded by trials or difficulties where we focus strictly on the need or our insufficiency for it instead of focusing on our, our Savior. And Father, I pray that you'd help us in times of difficulty, Lord, to not run to you as a last resort, Lord, but as a as a first option, Lord, to go immediately to the source of all blessings, Lord, to the God of our salvation, to the author and finisher of our faith, Lord, who who bestows blessings on us, Lord, not only physically, but much more spiritually. Lord, you have forgiven us of our sin. You have cleansed us. You have adopted us into your family. You've made us joint heirs with Christ. Father, we thank you for the grace that we have received at your hand and the mercy that you have shown us each and every day. Lord, I pray that we would run to you with our trials and problems and that we would give thanks for everything that we endure. Lord, in both times of of need and in times of plenty, may we always give thanks to you for what you have done. Father, I I pray that you would especially bless uh, this day, Lord, as it is uh, your day, the Lord's day, where we we gather to worship you and to praise you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, especially bless this day, Lord, as it is a day where we ordain our pastor this evening. And I pray that you'd uh, be with this church, be with our pastor as he uh, preaches in the next hour. I pray that you would work through the sermon. Lord, that we would be blessed by our fellowship with one another and by the reading of your word and the prayer and the singing of of praises to your name. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.